Welcome to the Curvebeam AI Connect podcast. I'm your host, Binti Singh. As some of you may know, Curvebeam announced its evolution into Curvebeam AI just recently. Curvebeam AI will continue to lead in developing state-of-the-art weight-bearing CT imaging systems. And through its merger with StraxCore, we are expanding our scope to include bone health imaging as well. The discipline of bone health assessment is ripe for transformation. And to talk about that today, we are honored to have on the podcast, Dr. Ego Seaman, a professor and endocrinologist at the Department of Medicine and Endocrinology, Austin Health at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He has over 400 publications to his name and has received several awards including most recently the Gideon Rodin Esteemed Mentorship Award, which he was just presented at the American Society of Bone and Mineral Research 2022 annual meeting, which just took place in Austin, Texas. Uh, Dr. Seaman, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Vinti. Thanks very much for having me. And congratulations on your uh, recent award. Thank you very much. Means a so, lot. Absolutely. Uh, so since this award recognizes uh, senior scientists who help promote the independent careers of young investigators in bone and mineral metabolism, I thought as a way to introduce our audience to you, uh, could you share with us in your early career, were there any mentors who helped you get started in this discipline? Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, that that's the whole, very much the special gift uh, that b both a mentor receives as well as the mentee receives, because we all know that, that none of us are where we are just on our own, that we've had lots of help and I've needed an enormous amount of help to keep me on the rails. And so uh, the, my first mentor actually, when I was about 14, was Elvis Presley. Now, you might wonder why, but if you have a look at Elvis and you have to have been grown up in, in his time in, in, in the 50s, was his courage, that nothing works without courage. And he had the courage to let people hear his voice and he had enough faith in himself to sing the songs and move in the way he wanted to move, which was very different to the way everybody was doing things back in the 50s. So although I'm a, you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I mean it. I think that courage is enormously important. I trained at the Mayo Clinic um, under Larry Riggs, and he was a man who produced over 50 PhD uh, students and now professors all around the world. And so I learned a lot about the uh, ability to try to think broadly in, in an area and also the ability to write the importance of the spoken and the written word. So uh, he was extremely important. Professor Jack Martin at the University of Melbourne, uh, his dedication to the importance of methodology, the care that we take in designing and executing an experiment uh, taught me so much, and, and I still learn from him, uh, you know, 40 years later. And there are many other people, we won't go on, 
But yeah, these are gifts that we receive from eminent people. And if we can, in just a small way, uh, do the same thing for young people growing up, I believe that's a great honor. Mm -hmm. Great honor. Mm -hmm. And and as this award signifies, you're very much doing that and, and helping the next generation um, in this. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sort of taking it back again to the beginning, um, maybe uh, this maybe we'll find that there were some overlaps with uh, when you were listening to Elvis Presley's music, but what got you interested in the field of bone and mineral uh, metabolism? Yeah, so uh, fairly humble things. Uh, after I graduated and after I had my uh, tertiary training as an endocrinologist, it's, it was the tradition very much that we work in, in different places around the world and so I wrote to several places and, and, and I was fortunate to get several job offers um, as a postdoctoral fellow. And uh, my late father said, oh, you've got an offer from the Mayo Clinic. That's amazing. And you should go because it's the famous Mayo Clinic. So I thought, oh, middle America, I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather go skiing somewhere in Colorado or hang out in San Francisco. But, you know, I was a kid, right? But um, and then the letter came from Larry Riggs and, and, and I had heard of him already uh, in my training as an endocrinologist. And, and as it turns out, we, we make our decisions uh, and uh, this was the best decision I made in my life. I, I learned so much. I made wonderful friends that I still have today. And I recommend to every young person to move out of their local town and get into the world, and it changes your life completely. Uh, and I think it's an incredibly important. And we, you know, my wife and I, we just got married, my wife for 40 years now, uh, we moved into a little village where there were all young people uh, living together and, and raising kids and things like that. And, and so I made friends in virtually every country of the world. And, and the gift that you get from that is is defies language. You you talk about, you know, being in different parts of the, the world. How has having a global perspective affected your approach to research, especially in this field? You have to have a global perspective. I mean, there is no other perspective. <laughs> I, I think that... Um, the process of the scientific method of exploration is learning how to ask a question. It is not easy to ask a question. And to ask, if you want the right answer, you have to ask the right question. And you can't ask the right question unless you read broadly and unless you read critically. Kids growing up, think when they go to university that they're there to learn and to take in information. That's not the case. They are there to learn critical reading, critical thinking, critical writing. It's, you know, in the first 20 years of our lives, we're meant to memorise everything and believe everything our teachers tell us. Um, and that's fine. You have to learn the, the alphabet but after graduation, you have, you have to learn 
that people are only people and that no matter what their title is or how great you think they are, we all make mistakes and we all understand things incompletely. And progress in science and, se- and progress in self in your own development depends not on what you know, but it depends on how you define what is not known. Because through defining what is not known, you can design experiments to test and to advance the field and to advance knowledge. And um, that is hard work. Mm -hmm. So what has prevented us from, if we know that architecture is so important, why hasn't that been a um, a key uh, uh, parameter that we have been looking at so far? Why have we? Because the technology has not been available. So that the methods of measuring the architecture of the bone using what we call high-resolution um, peripheral computed tomography, we can take a scan now and the technology is such that the radiation exposure has been minimized and is essentially negligible and allows us to measure the very fine architecture, the middle of the bone, which is shaped like a honeycomb, or I don't know if you have violet crumbles in in the United States and elsewhere, but, but honeycomb, spongy, um, the, the bone is called spongy bone. Why? Because that honeycomb, which is made of plates and sheets of bone with spaces in between, acts like a spring and allows us to walk. That spring changes shape and size by absorbing energy. If it didn't do that, the bone would break, that we lose that flexibility as, as we age. So we can now measure the fine trabecular architecture and we can also measure the outer shell of bone, which is called cortical bone. And it is a very dense structure with some porosity, but not too much. But as we age, that porosity increases. That's why it's called osteoporosis, porous bone and the bone then becomes fragile and can break. So the, the technology for measuring the fine architecture is a fairly historically recent uh, ad- advance in, in the technology. And, uh, you know, so it is a major advance because we've now demonstrated we can identify people who are going to fracture in the immediate future, in the next year or two, and people who are going to measure five to eight to ten years into the future, and we can get to them before they have a break and prevent that fracture from occurring. And if it's a hip fracture, 20% of people die before within 12 months of having a hip fracture. And as we have the aging population, the imperative to use methodology to prevent the first and all subsequent fractures is very, very important because we're all enjoying living longer now, but we don't want to be living, uh, you know, longer and then having hip fractures and then having to go to a nursing home and be dependent on family and nursing care. We want to keep our dignity and keep health and the independence of life is, is crucial. Well, those those statistics that you just read off the the ability to 
uh, detect the risk and prevent fracture um, to that degree is is huge. Um, can you talk about with the current standard of care, uh, DEXA? What is what are the rates of uh, what what are the rates with that modality? How 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 at what rate can we detect the uh, the potential for a person to be at fracture risk with with what modality? That's a good question, and it's a it's a, a complicated question because. There's a lot of confusion with the words we're using in the field. So the word osteoporosis is used a lot in day-to-day talk. And in, in normal language, when you say, oh, this patient's got osteoporosis, what we really mean is this patient has fragile bones. The more accurate word is to talk about bone fragility. The reason issues have arisen is that the World Health Organization convened a committee, and I was on that committee actually, and we wanted to be able to identify people at high risk of fracture. And we, when we measured the bone density, sure enough, we found that as bone density goes down, the risk of fracture increases. And so we chose an arbitrary cutoff value which is called a T-score of minus 2.5. In simple terms, it means we've just took, took the lowest value and anyone fur- below that, we call them osteoporosis. We call their bones as osteoporosis, as being very fragile. And that's true. But the problem that, uh, there are two problems have, have arisen. The first one, is that having fragile bones is not yes, no. In other words, yes, if you're below this cutoff level, and no, you don't have fragile bones if you're above it. That's not the case. There are degrees of fragility, just as there are degrees of being overweight, you're a little bit or very overweight, or that you have a little bit of blood pressure or very high blood pressure. It's not yes or no. So so that we have to be able to identify all or most of the people who have got fragile bones at risk of fracture. As it turns out, because of the population distribution, most people in the world, most people in the community do not have osteoporosis as defined by this bone density value below minus 2.5. Most of them have what we call osteopenia or so-called normal bone density. They do not, they are not necessarily free of the risk of having fractures. The bone density machine, which takes that minus 2.5 lower cutoff value, only detects 20 to 30% of the people who have fractures in the community. 70% of all fractures in the community occur in people who do not have osteoporosis, but they do have bone fragility, and they have bone fragility because during aging, the loss of bone has only reduced their bone density a little bit, 
but it has had a disproportionate effect on compromising the architecture of the bone. Now, let me say one more thing. I'm talking a bit long. It's all fascinating. So, When you compromise the architecture of the bone, it's like what I described to you about the narrowing of the vessel, that when you make dig holes in the outer shell of the bone, the loss of strength is a seventh power function of the porosity. In other words, a small increase in the hole compromises the strength disproportionate to the bone loss that produced the hole. And in the honeycomb or spongy middle of the bone, when you start to break up the honeycomb sponge structure, like walking through an old room where there are cobwebs and breaking all the cobwebs, that loss of connectivity of the connections of the honeycomb compromises the strength of bone to the third power. So again, you have a little bit of bone loss, but a massive compromise in strength because of the sacrifice of the architecture. And that's why measuring the architecture is so important. And that's why when we measure it, we've published already evidence that we can pick 70% of the people having fractures, whereas the bone density machine picks up about 20 to 30% of them. And a little bit of a complex answer, but that's, that's huge, that uh, the, the test that is considered the, the best test today is missing 70% of people who should be uh, put on uh, some sort of um, pathway to help prevent their uh, a fragility fracture from actually developing because they are at risk. But we're we're not addressing those uh, that entire cohort of of people, and uh, we could potentially save the health system quite a lot of money if we could prevent these folks from getting a fragility fracture in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Um, I- very much so, and, and save costs of healthcare, um, and also at every level, um, save nursing home costs, uh, keeping people out of nursing homes, keeping people independent, maintaining people's dignity uh, through ind- their independence. All of those things can be helped now. We have very good. Uh, treatments, very safe treatments that are easy to administer and and safe. And um, so we can help uh, individuals by preventing them having the the first and any subsequent fracture. And taking it back to what you said uh, in the beginning of this interview, that it's all about asking the right questions. What made you realize that we needed a different test, that we needed a more comprehensive test to properly understand any indiv- one individual's risk for fracture? Well, um, I, 40 years of doing research. <laughs> I, I think it's an evolution that, that uh, with time, I mean, bone densitometry was a great beginning. It gave us a window into the amount of bone 
But it did not take long, and it's widely recognized that the bone density machine is quite insensitive, missing 70% of fractures. That's been known for many, many years. And I think the that there's a parallel movement of understanding um, as, as technology improves and as the radiation exposure, as methods, and I don't know about this, but as methods of refining imaging so that we expose people to the minimum radiation, that the technology uh, improved, allowing us to start to get at the idea of the structural decay. The original definition of osteoporosis by the World Health Organization Committee of minus two, a T-score of minus 2.5, later on was modified where it was osteoporosis was defined as a reduction in bone mass associated with architectural decay. But the associated with architectural decay was lagged behind in becoming measurable. And there's still a long way to go. I mean, people around the world are still thinking mainly about BMD. And it's a, it is a mistake in many, many ways. And uh, you know, that if you only look at the shadow of the earth on the moon and think that's the earth, you will never ask questions about are there rivers, are there mountains, because you won't have a language. You won't see the mountains or rivers to ask questions of how much water is flowing through the river or is there dryness in the desert? And the same applies now, that if we stick with bone densitometry, we fail to ask ourselves about questions about the fine hierarchical architecture of the bone, which is a subject in itself, Inti. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're exploring these things because there are levels of architecture as we look in, in, in the strength, determining the strength of bone. And that actually takes us into the, if you want to proceed, into the discussion of artificial intelligence, where we're using technology that is detecting architectural changes at levels of resolution that we can't see ourselves. And it may be capturing the fine architecture at the nano, pico, micro level that we can't detect. And there's so much to be learned still. And we'll get there. Even though we have this technology now that can take these very high resolution, three-dimensional images of the bone that gives us so much more information about the actual architecture of the layers of the bone, our human eye and our human minds are limited in our ability to effectively uh, make a diagnosis from these, these high-resolution CT images that we're getting. And so the AI is assisting us in, in helping us do this quickly and more efficiently and more accurately. So that's, that's the second piece of this. Um, it's, it's not enough to have a better three-dimensional modality. You, you also need the tools to effectively read and interpret the images that it's providing. We have initial results using artificial intelligence to help us try to identify women at risk of fracture before they have a fracture. 
And at the recent American Society of Bone Mineral Research meeting, we presented our initial findings and they were very well received. And we are in the process of, of uh, continuing this work and we'll publish the work as, as soon as we can. That's extremely exciting. We'll be we'll be looking out for for those findings, um, and I know they they follow uh, some other landmark studies that um, that prove the the validity of this me- methodology. Um, I I do also want to ask um, this this is this is going to be game changing in terms of helping, especially women over seventy, identifying whether they're at risk for fracture, and then the appropriate um, interventions can be prescribed, um, but more specifically in, in orthopedics and for patients who are um, uh, looking at getting um, some sort of uh, patients who are preparing for orthopedic surgery, how could, uh, how could doing this type of assessment prior to surgery help identify potential risks and maybe even help improve outcomes? So people who are coming to surgery for whatever reason, if they've broken their hip or if they've had problems and need a prosthesis, we can measure the architecture of the bone as well as the mass of the bone. And many of these individuals have got thin bone as well as arthritic changes. And the the changes can, these the abnormalities can be identified and we may wish to recommend therapy if we find abnormalities in, in the outer shell, the cortex, which is so important to, to keep strong if it's going to hold the prosthesis properly. So we're able to identify those individuals who have compromised structure and offer them treatment either before or subsequent to their surgery, and we can use the technology to monitor therapy, to monitor whether the therapy is working and therefore continue it, or to monitor whether it's not working and then offer alternative approaches to treatment. So uh, the, the technology is so sensitive that we can detect changes fairly early within the first, within six months or so of any intervention and give us some insights into the benefits or lack thereof of, of treatments. And so uh, there, there are multiple options for, for treatment. If, if a patient is identified as being at risk for fracture, there are certain pharmaceutical interventions um, that could be prescribed, uh, which maybe are under-prescribed today just because we don't have the ability to properly identify the risk in the first place. Oh. And there is an enormous problem of failure of doctors to offer treatment and failure of patients to comply and adhere long-term to treatment. And part of the problem to be solved is, number one, to be identifying that 70% of, of women and men who do not have osteoporosis as defined by the bone density machine and identify the abnormalities in bone structure that, that are present and treat those individuals if the structural, if the destruction of the architecture is uh, severe, warranting prompt intervention. And we also need ways of monitoring therapy because this may reinforce the patient, when, the, when we see that it's working, we can tell patients that and, 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 and uh, help them c- 
continue to comply with therapy because it's doing some good. So we need ways of, of offering patients some evidence that the efforts they're making in complying with treatment are producing outcomes that are good for them. Absolutely. This seems like such an incredible breakthrough in this field to have the option to bring high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT out of the research setting um, where for many years resided solely because of the, the cost of the technology and um, what Curve Beam AI is doing is taking that platform and making it viable for the clinical setting, um, both in terms of, of cost and uh, size and ability to operate. So that's, that's a tremendous leap forward. And then building on top of that, the AI tool to analyze these scans um, in a way that doesn't require uh, people with uh, very advanced degrees and very specialized knowledge, but uh, giving access to every clinician for every one of their patients to be able to to uh, to run an analysis and, and have a much more accurate picture of their patient's bone health. It's it's really it's transformational and it's it's extremely exciting. Um, you know, how do you what do you think we've come up to this point? Where do you think will be five years from now, ten years from now? How do you hope that the uh, that the specialty will continue to evolve? The yeah, well, you've phrased that very well. The thank you. The we need this technology accessible in the community. We need it so that people who want to have a scan, who need scan a, a scan, can get to it, have the scan done quickly, safely, and so that there's wide access in the community and. The family doctors uh, need to be aware of this and have easy access to the technology. So what I hope is that, that this would, will be widely available throughout the world and that there are no long waiting lists because the you know, scanning takes only a matter of, of, uh, of minutes uh, to perform. And with, with tech, the technology and cloud-based technology analysis is rapid and patients can get a quick, the doctor and the patient can get a quick result and make a decision promptly uh, in, in a way that the patient can be treated. So we hope that uh, this technology would be, will be widely available in the community itself. And certainly it is now well beyond the region of a research um, tool We've got answers that, that this, these measurements are helpful and they identify people before they break a bone. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. Huge. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Great privilege to be part of it. Yes. Well, uh, great privilege to have you on the podcast and to get your Great privilege insights. to talk to you. And, and we'll definitely have to have you on again, because I feel like we've just barely scratched to the surface of this subject. And there's uh, so much more that we can talk about. So I definitely hope that you will be back on the podcast. With, mom, with pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Um, if, uh, 
If any of our listeners are interested in learning more, please go to curvebeamai.com where we have lots of information about uh, Curvebeam AI's uh, in-office HRPQCT platform, as well as the AI tools that we are developing to accompany it. Well, it's it's been a pleasure. And um, as we close, would you have any final thoughts that you'd want to uh, leave us with? I think that recognize I think people need to recognize that first of all that we have the privilege of living longer but we want to avoid the illnesses that accompany advancing age and one is the development of bone thinning and that because bone thinning is asymptomatic you don't know that your bones are thinning until you break one it is useful for people to remember that talk to their family doctors about it, and where appropriate, seek further advice from their specialists locally and perhaps consider having a bone density scan and bone microarchitecture assessed and discuss the results with their doctors. It's preventative care. It's no different to having your blood pressure checked. It also increases with ageing. And we don't know it. And we want to make sure that we lower the blood pressure before we have a stroke or heart attack. The same with cholesterol. We check the cholesterol before we have cardiac problems. And the same thing goes with bone. And we have the technology to assess it quickly and safely. We have tools to help rebuild the skeleton. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's, that's a great note. Um, you know, uh, awareness and prevention is key. And with, with that, uh, we'll hope to have you on again. And uh, thanks, everyone, for, for tuning in.